Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we are going to talk about pricing your expertise in novel ways. Yes. Which is to say, not by the hour. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody will ever believe that I came up with the idea for this episode, Jonathan. This has you written all over it. Believe it, dear listener. So <laughs> Rochelle sent uh, over two why don't you describe it? It's like sort of two articles from the LA Times. Yeah, yeah. On Sunday, the LA Times published two articles right next to each other. And I just found it fascinating in the business section. And the first one is a new school, I believe it's in Silicon Valley, called the Lambda School. And the idea behind it is that you pay zero tuition. And they also have like stipends for, you know, certain kinds of students. And then the way it works is you pay back 17% of your income from the first two years after you start working. But, but you have to earn more than $50,000 a year. So you pay 17% of your income for two years with a maximum total payment of $30,000. And if you don't get a job at that level, so if you get a job that's at $45,000, you pay zero. I mean, have you ever heard of a school like that? I never have. The thing about it that's striking to me is that it's novel. It's unusual. It's an unusual way to think about sort of transferring the equity of the relationship back and forth, sort of sharing in the, the upside for both sides. And what's really interesting is in this particular example, is the financial incentives that that places on the two different parties and how they're different from the traditional school loan type of thing. It's in the institution's best interest to teach you things that are going to get you placed in a high-paying job, where with a traditional, like when I went to school and got a, a loan to go to music school, <laughs> you know, if, if they were going to take a percentage of my income, that school wouldn't exist, I don't think. So yeah. <laughs> not that we need to go into like the goodness or badness of that idea, but it is, it's really interesting to see how it changes the incentives when the, the money is, is different. And then there was another one. What was the other one? The other one was Schwab. Schwab people might still think of them as discount brokers, but they have gazillions of dollars under management. And so what they did is they came up with a new financial planning model. So it used to be that you would pay... Uh, I think it's 0.28% of your assets for what they call financial planning. And I'm putting that in quotes. It, it says that they have a certified financial planner. I can't tell how much of it is kind of, you know, what they call robo-advising versus a real person. But they switched that to an upfront fee plus $30 a month. Mm -hmm. The subscription model. Yeah, subscription model. And one of the things I find interesting about that is just that they have so many clients or customers, whatever they call them, they have so many that they're, they're the big kahuna of this. And I mean, it literally shifts. It's like, it's like turning a cruise ship on a dime. You know, that's what it feels like. I was trying to imagine how I would feel if I was inside Schwab, not as a customer, but inside. This had to be a huge change in pricing. And I'm sure they did a million gazillion models on how they're going to figure this all out. But it felt like such a big change for them. I was just really struck by and the juxtaposition of these two articles next to each other in the business section. Right. And the, the, the thing that popped up to me that I think would be of interest to you, the dear listener, about this one was that because they have 
because they're at scale with the number of clients that they have, it puts them in a position to price themselves differently, price their services differently, to spread out the risk differently. There's things that you couldn't do. You couldn't do this if you're, you know, like a family, a, a sort of private family wealth management. It, it just wouldn't work. It would sort of fundamentally violate the nature of the or the expectations of a relationship like that. But since it's at scale, it allows them to experiment with things that you wouldn't be able to experiment not at scale. And the parallel, I think, to people who are building an authority business is that if you are focused on doing really high touch one on one sorts of engagements, it's going to present you with a certain risk profile and certain limitations with your, you know, cash flow and the growth of the business and all of those sorts of things that just sort of not disappear, but you have a lot more latitude, I guess I would say, if you, instead of having just a couple of really big clients, so like just a handful of clients who pay you quite a bit of money for a lot of attention versus a, you know, hundreds or thousands of people who have bought your book or your course where you teach the same sort of expertise, but you're scaling it out to a, a much larger uh, audience or much larger, it's like a crowd of people instead of one individual. The way that you approach it mentally can be different. So you can you can approach a group of a thousand customers. You can't do it one-on-one, -on -one, like unless you have a gigantic team, like you wouldn't be able to personally deal with a thousand customers, like say in a, in a coaching, a one-on-one -on -one coaching agreement. You'd, there's not enough hours in the day. You have to come up with uh, ways to price that. You First of all, packages of things to sell in that format. You know, maybe it's a book, a video course. Uh, maybe it's a productized service to a smaller group. But there are all sorts of different things that, you, that are in your head that you can wrap up as an info product or a book or a course and sell that to this giant group of people. And what that does is it spreads out your risk in a very different way. You're getting lots of little payments instead of these one big payment, these sort of whale client things where you're coming up to renewal and you're like, oh boy, I hope they renew. It's just different. Like the risk profile is different. So like the, you have like fewer eggs in a smaller basket if you've got like six clients that are paying you $10,000 a month or something versus a thousand customers, really, I would call them not clients, but a thousand customers are paying you $10 a month or whatever. You can adjust things in the lower price tiers that are being sold to bigger groups of people. You can adjust things and see how it affects the behavior versus it's just so highly individualized when you have a small group of, of high touch uh, service clients. It's much more individualized. It's less predictable. And predictability is a big thing. It's a lot less predictable. So I, I just found that really interesting. And I thought the Schwab example really called attention to that at like, a, at like, a, I mean, they have millions of customers, I think it said. So to imagine that scale is probably more, probably out there for anybody we're talking to, unless you're a best-selling author. But, but yeah, so thought we'd talk about ways to think about packaging your expertise in different ways so that you've got a different risk profile different level of high touch, low touch interaction, and, you know, can price in different ways. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's just sort of echo your thing, Jonathan, about value. It's, you really want to price this 
when I say value pricing, I'm not talking about the process you go through to value price something one-on-one with a client, but you want the price of whatever this is you're creating to reflect its value to your ideal user. Yes. And that's a key piece, the ideal user. So you can't just say like, oh, well, this, this is worth this much. It's like, well, not to me, maybe yes, maybe no. But when you're dealing with big groups of people, and when I say big, I don't mean like millions, I don't mean mass market, but I mean, you know, a hundred or 500 or a thousand people, uh, maybe a couple thousand people on a mailing list, you start to understand what they value similarly as a group. I don't usually use the word value price in group situations. I usually use value pricing in a very specific thing, a one-on-one sales meeting, and you're going to do a custom proposal for a project. When it comes to, even though you still can value price, I mean like airlines and hotels and, and soda manufacturers, they all, they're all doing value pricing. They're selling based on the value, not the cost. But for people who I normally work with, it's kind of, it's too much, it's too abstract. So uh, I really think about it like this. You might not always price based on value as the pricer, but everybody always buys on value. Everybody always, always makes the decision based on whether or not they think it's worth the price, assuming you give them a price. That's, that's key. That's key. And I think if, if you just think about anything that you buy in your life, you know that. I mean, Jonathan, you're not going to buy the hat with the fancy fur pom poms, right? (laughs) The knitted hat for 400 or $500. I might. Yep. I'm not sure, but I would at least look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it's it's what it means to you, the buyer. Mm-hmm. Will I be happier after I part with this money? Do I want this venti Starbucks bike place? Is it worth five bucks or I don't even know how much they are. But that's that's the idea. So, at a certain point, you can get a feel for what something's probably worth when you have, like, say, a mailing list that you're interacting with, you know, a few thousand people. Uh, this is totally doable. It's totally doable. You just, you just, you through conversation with the group and you can come up with prices for things or you can come up with offerings or packages things together in a way that makes sense to them. Here's an example that comes up a lot. If you think more broadly about what it is that you do and what your expertise resent, presents to people and, and why it's valuable to people and you think really broadly about it, you can come up with some really clever stuff. So here's the the canonical example for me is that a student comes to me or somebody sends me an email and they say, uh, what should I do? And I'm like, well, the first thing I need to know is like, who do you seek to serve? As Seth Godin would say, or who's your ideal buyer? Who do you care about? What are you passionate about? Who do you want to help? And it's very common in a situation like that for somebody to say, well, I'd love to, to help mission driven businesses or nonprofits or my church or something like that. Some sort of like nonprofit and, but, but they're broke. They haven't got the money. Or I'd like to help small businesses, people that are just founding their first first business, but they're broke. They can't afford my whatever the thing is that I do, my custom software development or my uh, my architecture, whatever, you know, my architecture services or my high-end video production. They can't afford that. So, And they immediately, instead of thinking, well, what could I do to help these people? that's from my area of expertise. Instead of that, they immediately like, well, I guess I can't help the people I want to help. So who can afford me? Who can afford the stuff that I want to do? Who can afford the activities that I want to engage in on a daily basis that I have to price really high? 
because they're very costly activities that I engage in. And they immediately discount this sort of group that maybe doesn't have the same kind of a budget that a Fortune 500 would have or a big retailer. And I'm like, well, hold, hold the phone here. Like, what exactly is the problem that these people have? Do you even know? Like, are you just saying mission-driven businesses because you think it sounds like Mr. Nice Guy? Or do you actually care? Or you have like a story here. And if they have a story, it means that they know someone or they've got some experience. They adopted a dog or their spouse does this thing or whatever. And they've got inside information. And it's like, well, go talk to the board and say like, hey, I'm a, I'm a thing. I'm a person that does this thing. And I see you have these problems. I would love to help. I, I don't think I can do for you what I do for my kind of like expense, you know, my, my premium clients, but there's gotta be something I could do to help you guys. Is there, you know, what, what might that be and have a conversation around that? It could be that, uh, you build a WordPress plugin that helps animal shelters, uh, connect with pet finder. It's one that it's come up in the past, or it could be that there's, um, there's a website checklist or a content marketing checklist, or you put together a short course on how to use email marketing, uh, for, you know, I'm going with animal shelters, but so let's just go with that. Uh, a way to do email marketing for animal shelters. Here's a drip course on how to use, you, you know, drip is email marketing software or MailChimp course on, on how to place more puppies, whatever. And, and if you think more broadly about the way that you could package up all the smarts that are in your head and make them affordable to the people who you want to help, you can, Maybe in your mind, you're like, oh, I want to do this high touch one-on-one software consulting project type work. And like, that's this very limiting view that you have of like your expertise and the way that it has to be applied. If you don't think, well, what if I did it in a different way that was lower cost to me and I could leverage it so that I could sell the same thing over and over and over at a much lower price point so that the people who I actually want to help can afford it and they'll get positive ROI on it. So to take it back to the everybody buys on value thing, they would look at, you know, they would sort of see uh, the benefits of the course. Like, let's say it's email marketing for animal animal shelters. And they say, huh, okay, what are the benefits of this? You know, by the end of this course, I will know how to X, Y, and Z. Uh, These should result in this kind of a benefit to you. Um, they can read down and say, oh, I do look like the, the target market. You know, I have, I do have one part-time employee. I'm, the, I'm the owner. I have one part-time employee. I have roughly this many animals at a given time. So, wow, this was definitely made for somebody like me. The benefits are X, Y, and Z. Those are things that I care about and I would love to have there. The price tag here is $350. That's, you know, that's a, a week of pay for my part-timer, but these benefits are, are worth it. I believe these benefits are worth it. And oh, look, there's a money back guarantee. So now all of a sudden, Mr. Software Developer, who's put together a course on how to use drip for animal shelters, doesn't have to do anything once it's done other than let people know about it. So like go back to your board and say, you know what? I put, hey folks, I put together this course. I'll let you guys take it for free. I'd like to get feedback if, you know, if, if, if you think it was good, if the, if you think it wasn't, how could I improve it? Um, who else can you connect me with that would benefit from this in other cities? And it's, you're still using software development skills to teach people how to use this software program. Maybe you would think, here's another problem is people are like, yeah, but I could do so much more for them if they could afford you. Well, they can't afford you. <laughs> So is this, would you rather give them nothing or something? Sometimes 
money is more of a priority than a resource. So like when you're dealing with bigger companies that are a going concern, they're not like out of business, but it's not, it's not that they don't have the money. They're probably, you know, as Ellen White says, they're probably spending more on toilet paper than they're going to spend on you. It's a question of where they want to spend their money. So it's, it's more about prioritization of the services that you offer versus whether or not they actually have the money. But there are businesses, nonprofits are a common example, although there are plenty of very, very well-heeled nonprofits. But there are certainly nonprofits that you might want to help that really, really don't have enough money to hire you to do your most high-touch, fancy, one-on-one service. But that doesn't mean that you can't help them in any way at all. And if you can leverage something that's low touch, like a video course in this example, or a book or a report or a uh, presentation or something that's recorded and digital and reproducible for free, then it's possible that you can actually have an impact on these organizations who you'd like to help and do so in a way that continues to fund your mission. So you're not losing money on it. It's not like a charity thing for you. You're, you're getting paid enough for you to keep doing it and doing more of it. Yeah. I think that's an example where your passion is for the audience and you'd like to apply your expertise. You're just not really sure how you could also switch that around. And there might be a situation where for you, it's more about the work you do, the kind of work you do. That's the passion versus the specific audience. So that person might say, yeah, you know, I don't want to spend my time on figuring that out. What I really want to figure out is, and then they come up with a, a, something that's work-related, and then they find their audience based on that. Your strongest passion drives you, and you can create a business model out of almost anything if you approach it as a business. Mm-hmm. That's the one that everybody wants to do. So the people I work with all want to do that. They're like, I am super passionate about building web apps with React JS. I just love that. I think it's the coolest thing ever. I just want to do that. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, it's just like it's like a framework for making applications on in a browser. The problem is they're passionate about that. And just like you, just like your reaction, nobody knows what that is except for your colleagues. Like, it seems like, oh, it's the most popular front-end framework in the world right now, and you've never even heard of it. So, okay. Um, <laughs> now we're Yeah, hunting. I would not know how to connect somebody who said they did that. Right. I mean, I would have to ask, like, 10 questions to figure out who I know who might be needing probably, that kind of service. Probably more than 10. Yeah, it's, yeah. Almost, it's almost hopeless. So, But if I said to you, do you know anybody that runs an animal shelter? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know anybody yeah. that's ever adopted a dog? <laughs> yeah. A yes. hundred, you know, so instantly you yeah. have, I mean, I'm not saying it, it, it certainly can work the other way around. It certainly can. And for, and I think software development is particular, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe it's just me because that's the space I'm in, but it's so obscure that it feels like it's not obscure to developers because there's millions of us, but we are not our own buyer. Well, plus I think that, what you get in trouble with in the development world is that you get attached to a, a particular software or a model and you stick with that and times change. You know, what's hot now may not be hot next year or the year after. I think in more traditional consulting, you know, the parallel is if you get so attached to your methodology 
and you're not paying attention to how it works in the real world and adjusting. So I think the software developer, you know, as an outsider looking in, has some special quirks about that. But if you said, well, I, I do big scale OD projects, organizational development, then you can start to figure out what that looks like. You say, well, I really want to work with companies in the middle of a merger acquisition or spinoff. And this is what that looks like. And so it's about the work first, and then it's the audience. So then it's it's not so much even that they're saying, oh, I want to help every merger acquisition or spinoff. It's I want to really change the lives of the people that are on the inside of that. I want to figure out how to make that better. That becomes a calling or mission driven from the work standpoint versus the pure client. Although as, even as I said that, I can see how it goes both ways. So maybe it's, you know, it's never absolute. They're always tied. It's a question of where you are on the spectrum, I think, because the there's the I'm in love with this tool. I'm in love with this methodology. And then that's like super tactical. It's super self, not selfish, but it's self-centered. It's like a, a self-centric view of the world. Here's the thing I love. I want to get paid to play with this thing that I love. It's like, who will pay me to play with this thing that I love? I'm sorry to report that the world does not owe you an income for engaging your favorite activities. So you need to connect the dots for people. And it's almost certainly a way, if, you're, if you've been hired to do this, even by the hour or whatever, there's a way to connect the dots. Someone connected the dots for you. So if you want to come from it, at it from an expertise standpoint, the less me-focused it is, and there's a range... The less me focused it is, the easier it is for other people to connect the dots for you, to do introductions, to recognize that they might be a good customer for you. And so if you're like on the one end of the spectrum, you're like, I want to build React components. That's pretty me focused. And then the other end of the spectrum is totally you focused. Like I want to help uh, animal shelters save more dogs. Like, wow, okay, that's, it doesn't even say what you do, right? So that's like the, that's totally you focused. And then somewhere in the middle is like, oh, I want to help companies that are going, you know, I want to help companies going through uh, a spinoff. That's sort of in the middle. It's kind of saying like, I, I help, you know, I do this sort of organizational development management consulting. So it's kind of, it's kind of like saying that. And, uh, but you're also talking about the ideal buyer enough or at least a little bit, so that you could maybe have a Rolodex moment with the right people. So you're like, oh, I know somebody that's going through a going through a spinoff or a merger or an acquisition. Uh, like, oh yeah, didn't NBC Universal just do that? Or you could kind of have some kind of sense of it. But I don't, I don't. It's not a binary thing. It's sort of there's this super me focused on one end and super you focused on the other. But the 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 big point for this episode, I think, is coming up with novel ways to package your expertise in like think more broadly about the things that you do and how you could, I don't know if there's another word for package or if I'm just gonna have to say that 10,000 times in this episode, but, but to put it in a box and sell it so that people who, first of all, maybe couldn't afford your helicopter option, I usually call it. So people who can't afford your helicopter option, they can at least buy a bike from you. And a lot of times, by virtue of putting it in a box, you write something on the box that helps them understand the benefits to them. So this, a lot of people I, I work with, they're like, I'll say, oh, well, what do you tell people you do? And like, well, it depends on who I'm talking to. I'm like, that's a bad sign. 
you're talking to me. Tell me what you do. Well, have you ever heard of da, 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 and they like pull out a PowerPoint deck and they're like giving me a 45 minute, you know, narrative of like, well, the last time I worked for somebody and I did this and it's like, and they're telling me the activities they engaged in and they're not telling me what change they, their work had on the business. Like they're not telling me how they transformed the business in any way and they can't really say what they do. So it's really hard for, for me as a listener to say, oh, you know who I should introduce you to because it's it's not clear. So it's it's a sign that, that, that they have no marketing, <laughs> that there's yeah. no market. You don't want to introduce them to anybody. Who wants a 45-minute PowerPoint presentation right. on nothing? Right. No. Right. Like I might meet someone and they're smart, they're personable. I click with them. We like the same jokes. We like the same movies. We like the same books. They, I'm sure they're good at what they do. They, they come across as highly competent, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> I, I would love to introduce you to, I, would, I love matchmaking people. It's one of my favorite things. A lot of people love doing that, but I have no clue who to introduce you to. So that's a, that's a sign that your marketing needs work. And, and, but the point here is that if, you know, when I work together with a student, there's like a, like as a software developer, well, I could do anything for anyone. Yes, I know that. But what, what things do you want to do? Who do you want to do it for? Let's come up with a little tiny, simple thing. You know, one that came up recently was like, uh, I can create, I, I've made a couple of games for like trade show booths, like digital games for trade show booths. Like, oh man, that's really interesting. And it's the teeniest little thing. Like this person could do a million other things, but it's this one little thing. And it's like, well, let's put that in a box and see, and think about it. Like who would care about this? Well, people that have trade show booths, how would you find a list of those people? Well, we could go to conference websites and get a list of people who have trade show booths. And then we could connect with them on LinkedIn and we could ask them if they ever thought about putting a, the last time you invested in a trade show booth, did you have a line of people or were you just sort of twiddling, twiddling your thumbs, taking turns to go get coffee, you know, and wasting that probably five to $10,000 investment in that table. And it's like, oh, interesting. Well, what if you had a, a sort of interactive multiplayer game that had a line of people standing outside of your booth. Like that, that would be great. That'd be interesting. And obviously anybody listening is like, well, the software developer, and any software developer could do that, right? And it's like, yeah, but the point here isn't that this is a good idea. The point is that if you pick a thing and you put it in a box, all of a sudden, like almost by virtue of it being constrained like that, you can almost immediately tell who it's for. And if you can immediately tell who it's for and you still get to do the thing you love, like whether it's make interactive games for trade show booths or maintain people's WordPress plugins or build Shopify apps for people who sell jeans, all of a sudden it's like, oh, like, like this, this thing, easy to sell or easy to find out if anybody cares about it, easy to find out, easy to find people to talk to about it in the very least. It's not quite a leap of faith, but it's a mental leap for someone who is capable of building anything from, from like a rails application to a node server to a, you know, whatever, like a, a, you name it, you know, could build anything. Like I know all these languages, I'm a, a full stack developer. I can do anything anybody needs. And that it feels very constrained to be like, well, why would I focus down on just this one thing? And 
I'd be like, well, so that you could actually tell people what you do. So you could actually find an audience. So you could actually deliver value at a low price point instead of this helicopter option that you're trying to sell to everybody. You could broaden your user base or your customer base so that you have hundreds or even thousands of customers for this thing instead of, you know, one to two new clients per year for these really risky, big software projects. So to go back to the Schwab example, you end up diversifying your income stream, not just the the clients, but the types of things that you're selling. So you're slowly building a little bit of a digital product business while you're still doing this consulting stuff. So not only would you, um, you're, you're bringing in like regular income in a very low touch way, but you're getting experience with a completely different way of packaging your expertise for sale. And you might find that you like it a lot better. You might find that you start getting lots of ideas like, wow, that was easy to put in a box. I can think back to a couple of other engagements I did that transformed the company that I could do a sort of a miniature version of for people in that space or people in an adjacent space. It would be just like, I just make another box like, and then, wow. And now I've got like four of these boxes on the shelf. Like, this is fun. I don't have to like, like <laughs> I'm not getting like all caps, angry emails on a Sunday anymore, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I really like the idea and I, I've, I've just wrote a box around the words, put it in a box. For somebody who's not in software development, they might say, oh, well, yeah, software developers, that's easy. Of course you can develop something. That's, you know, that's what you do. But you can do it no matter what your area of expertise. I think that the process is the same, is to find something that you can put in a box and experiment with it. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. In fact, I, I think you, we would both argue that smaller is better as a place to start. Yeah, hundred percent. It's less Put risky to test. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, for <laughs> I'm thinking of this. Like, my my kids have this slime. It's like a toy. It's just it's like slime, okay. right? <laughs> if that if that was like if I got up in the morning and I found that on the floor in the bathroom and I didn't know what it was, I would call the fire department. <laughs> but if it's in a box and I'm like, oh, okay, the, the box sets the context. It explains all of the things that I need to know about it. It's like, oh, this is a toy. It's non-toxic. It can be used in these ways. It's fun for these reasons. Other kids love it because of this. Uh, it's a craze that's sweeping the nation, right? So like all of a sudden you give context to the exact same thing that I would have run screaming from if it was just laying there. All of a sudden the box, it gives you all the information that the, the correct buyer needs to know. If you don't have kids, you probably don't care about this like magic slime. But if you do have kids, or if the kids personally see it, they're gonna be like, oh, this is so cool. But you can't see the slime. When you go to buy it, you can't see the slime because it's disgusting. <laughs> you don't wanna see that. You wanna know about the fun. You wanna hear all about the fun. You wanna hear about the benefits, and that's what's on the box. The attributes. Yeah, it's, it's value, attributes, and audience. If you think about it, that's what you do. When you put something in a box, you have to get really clear about those three things. It, it, you left one out though, price. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. But that's what well, I, I said. I said value, but yeah, value and price are different things. But but when you know those things that will tell you and I think that's the hardest thing for some of us that probably most of us listening to this, we sell air on one level, right? Because what you sell is the outcome on the other side. So when you take some aspect of your expertise and you put it in a box, it forces you to decide on those factors and experiment with those factors. And it's a lot easier to do that in, in a piece of something you put in a box than your whole business 
your whole value proposition. Yes, I agree. I'm going to guess that people listening wouldn't be uncomfortable with the idea of writing a book if it weren't for all, you know the time. Yes, it's a lot of work, but but the idea of writing a book probably doesn't scare people in a pigeonholing themselves kind of way. So in my experience, let's just limit it to that. In my experience, a lot of the people who come to me who are just don't don't have any marketing happening at all and are just sort of this generic I can do anything for everyone sort of situation. Almost all of them would be not all, but almost all of them would be like, yeah, I would I would love to write a book. I don't really have time to do it, but I would love to do it. So like the idea of writing a book doesn't scare them. It doesn't make them feel like they would be pigeonholed forever and ever. Amen. To just the, the, like the only thing they know is what went in the book. Somehow it's, somehow it's just natural for at least the folks I work with to be like, Oh, people like us write books. The books aren't about everything we know. They're about building social web applications or JavaScript, the good parts or high performance websites. That's not everything I know as a developer, but I'm going to write a book about this and it has a, it's, it's limited in scope. It has 200 pages and I'm going to, um, that's it. And it's not everything I know. It's just what people who want to, you know, build high performance websites need to know to do that. And for some reason that doesn't freak people out that I work with. But the idea of offering a product that just does one thing for one kind of person, exactly like a book, freaks freaks them out. Like, like this is the end of the world. I might as well get a neck tattoo that says that all I do is this and I can't do anything else. Like it's a like it's a some sort of cage that they're in. It's interesting. It's never really occurred to me not, but until now that we're talking about it. But it, to me, it's the same concept. It's like if if you would be uh, let's say not threatened by the idea of writing a book. So I don't see a major difference between that and like why you would be threatened to create a productized service where you taught, uh, like maybe you had a plugin that helped animal shelters integrate with WordPress, you know, integrate pet finder with WordPress, let's say it's like, what's the big deal? It's just another thing that you do. It wouldn't be nice. No, you know, stepping back, it would be nice if they all made sense together. If you had like a lot of boxes, and a book, and a course, and some productized services. It would be nice if they all made sense. You'd create some gravity. You'd have like a body of work. You'd get more of a flywheel effect because they would, they'd all sort of market each other. That would be good. It would be harder to sell like a different thing to all, you know, just like random collection of stuff that didn't make much sense together, like a content marketing thing and an email marketing thing and like a e-commerce over here and SEO over there. That would be a little scattered and hard to tell a story. Maybe it'll be less threatening to people if I said, come up with six things that you could put in a box. I want to hear all six. I'll bet you that would make people feel a little bit more comfortable because they would feel less like it was all or nothing or they were putting all their eggs in their only egg in one basket or something like that. That'll be a good experiment. Uh, I have a theory on what you said because I found the same to be true. And in, in all the years I've been doing this, I only had one client say, no, I don't want to write a book. And she had very specific reasons that I agreed with on why she didn't want to write the book. Hmm. But maybe it's because there's still a part of a lot of people that think when you write a book, that when you finish it, you're done. And it goes off and becomes this bestseller and you just stand by and take the accolades. Whereas, you know, if you create a product, you got to sell that puppy yourself. Yeah. 
you got to put it out there. You have to put energy into selling it. There's a process. And now you absolutely have to do the same thing with a book. But I think people don't, when you just ask the question, I don't think they think about that. Book somehow seems more magical. Yeah. Versus yeah, you're the probably product. right. Yeah, I think you're probably right. It probably takes the same amount of time depending on what the product is or if you've already created, or the box, I should say, not the product, but the boxes. You know, unless you've already created some of that, you're, the book probably takes more time. When I'm working with folks who have experience, you know, they didn't just go solo. People in my private coaching program, it's pricier. So I have people who are more successful, have been more established. And all of them have plenty of experience doing tons of client work. They've been doing client work for five, 10 years. They've got lots of experience. They've got happy, you know, they're happy clients. The thing that they're, they don't know almost always is what the client actually bought, like what the client thinks they bought. So they don't, they know that they were hired to do, to apply their expertise manually, so to speak, but they almost never know what the client got out of it because they have a tendency to chicken out when it's time to ask for testimonials or case studies. They have a tendency to like, once the project's over, they kind of don't want to poke the box because there's, you know, usually with a software project, there's like a forced march to hell that happens always at the end when there's a deadline or the budget's running out or people are starting to get anxious or nervous or um, frustrated. And so they, they, once it's fixed and working and done and everybody's happy, they kind of they're like, okay, run away. You know? <laughs> I can so, understand that. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's a, it's, it's a stressful activity. It's kind of like, you know, moving or something. There's so many little details and there's, there's always more, you know, like, Oh, we're, we're done packing the truck. And then you open that one last closet and you're like, Oh, we're going to have to make another trip. <laughs> right. I identify. Yeah. It's software projects are a lot like that. And so it's, so it's stressful. They're almost always stressful toward the end. Uh, so I, so I get it. I understand why, but not knowing the answer to the question, like how did this project transform your business? What effect did this have in your business in the client's own terms, which will be very, um, business-like and not like, oh, well, the, the code is so elegant and we have no technical debt and we're on all the latest frameworks and our securities are totally up to date. Like, no, they're not going to say that. They're going to they're gonna say, this doubled our sales. They're going to say that our customer service team has been sending me gift baskets every week because now they can leave at 5 p.m. where before they were working around the clock. There's going to be something like that. And it's never going to be like, oh, that code was so elegant. Man, we we printed it out and framed it. Well, but where you get that, I mean, because some people go, well, how do I find that? I mean, if you haven't been asking for testimonials, that's where you get it. One of the things I love about reading testimonials uh, the testimonials page on consultants' websites is where they haven't played with the client's words. You, you'll you see themes, but you will see very different comments about what each person got from the experience. And it's fascinating. Read those. Ask for your own. It's I love getting testimonials. Well, who doesn't? Hello. Who doesn't like to hear, oh, you are wonderful. But what's fascinating about it is, to me, is the, the how and the what. Like, what was wonderful and how was it wonderful? Because I'd like to repeat it. And I'd like to use it when I talk to somebody about what was valuable. I think I've written about this. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show. But I had a, a client where 
we were sitting down with someone else over lunch and there were the three of us and the uh, the third person who was actually going to hire my client to do some speaking said something about, well, you know, how did you start working together? And so he told this story of the work I had done for him and his business partner and he told something I'd never heard before. So he talked about how I prevented them right up front from having trouble in their future relationship because I made them sit down and agree on what this business looked like, what their joint goals were, and who was going to do what. I just never even thought about that. I mean, of course I did that. But for for them, it was totally game-changing. And that was the thing that they remembered. Not the brand that I worked on, not how many copies of the books that they sold, not how much money they made out of the speeches, but it was that their business operated smoothly and went on to make a significant amount of money. Like... But I would never have known that. I mean, it's not very often I'm in casual conversation with a client and somebody else, and they ask a question like that. So getting to the bottom of that for you and your relationship with your clients, I mean, that's everything. And that might even help you decide what to put in a box. That's exactly where I was going with it, which is when you have past clients, if you can go back and get those testimonials and there's you know, a pretty straightforward way to do that. I have it on my website. If people care, they can email me or whatever. But once you get that information, that's what you put on the box. And <laughs> it might even tell you what to put in the box. So you're like, okay, um, that, you know, I did whatever. I worked for this client for 18 months. We did a bunch of things, but man, that request module changed the way they did business. And that was just like a throwaway thing that we did in two days. Like, oh, interesting. Well, what if I just, what if we just have this sort of uh, boilerplate code set up to do these request modules for a certain kind of business. And that's it. It's fixed scope. It's, I mean, it's going to be basically the same for everybody. They might have to meet some sort of baseline requirements. Like they have an IT department that has a, has access to a web server, or they have to be cool with me hosting an idea because whatever, some like basic requirements of what an ideal customer looks like. And just say, Oh, this is a thing we offer. It's 7,500 bucks. It'll change your business in these ways. And you don't even have to talk about what's going to happen behind the scenes. You can just be like, here's how it will work for the, for the end user. Not like how, how the, you know, like how do the spark plugs like interact with the carburetor, but like, you know, here's how you get in the car. Here's how you drive the car. Here's how you turn on the radio. It has this many cup holders. Like, you know, you might talk about those things and then say, and and here's how it transformed this client's business. And then you cut to the testimonial of like person being just raving about, you know, we didn't, we didn't realize what a big deal this was going to be. We just, you know, we experimented with it. And then one day we said, okay, that's enough of an experiment. And we turned it off and the entire company started emailing me immediately. How come the website's down? Like, oh, that was just a test. No, no, no. We need that. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. So all of a sudden you're like, you've got this little thing, but anyway, I'm making a long story longer. But if you, if you look back at your past clients, whether you're a software developer or whatever, and you can get testimonials from them, that could give you an idea for one, two, three, four, five different potential sort of like relatively easy to implement projects that are highly valuable to them that you could put in boxes on your sales, you know, products and services page. Yeah. And the process you just described is if you think about going and looking for a course on something, the really good courses do exactly what you just described right? Because they'll, they'll fit in some testimonials, they'll talk about this, and then they'll have people and you see their face, or maybe it's a video, and you hear about how their lives or their businesses were changed from this course. 
it's really getting that mindset. It's a, it's a marketing and authority mindset as you, as you do this. And it's just easier to start with something small. You don't have to tackle your whole business model in a day. Just try one little piece. In one day, you could just write a page that describes a productized service that is something that you would deliver manually. It's not like a course where you have to record a bunch of videos or write a bunch, you know, build a workbook or something. But you're just like, ah, I'm going to take this one request page that I did for this one client who loved it. And I'm going to say, well, what if what if what if other people like them could use the same thing? And it just take you like a short amount of time to write a page on it. And then you know what your client was, what industry they were in, or there's some attribute of them that whatever the thing is, like it was animal hospitals, it was a retail organization, it was a work group inside of an enterprise, connect with some other people and be like, hey, I'm working on something new. It's not ready for sale or anything like that. But, you know, I'd love it if you could give me if you could just give me some feedback on it. It doesn't make any sense at all. Am I getting my point across here? And have them read it. They might say, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Or they might say, this is amazing. We need this. So like, well, I mean, I wasn't really ready to sell it or anything, but we could talk about that. (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah. And that does happen. Like if you nail it, people will be like, take my money, please. Yeah. I think that's what happened on the Paul Jarvis episode when he was talking about his newest product. Yes, absolutely. Just sent it out there with a tweet. People said yes. They mocked something up. More people said yes. And, you know, and then they decide to make a product. So, I mean, that's the process. Yeah. It's a great example. Yeah, that was his his privacy-focused analytics package. It's like a Google Analytics competitor called Fathom that doesn't track people's personal data. Yeah, it's a, that's a, a great example. We did a, I think that episode might have been called testing with a tweet or something like that. Well, that um, was the follow up episode. We did okay. the company of one with Paul Jarvis and then we did the testing with a tweet because we were so fascinated by the concept. We had to devote an episode to it. Right. It's a great example. And it, you can go back and listen to it. Um, but I, I've done the same thing on my mailing list many, many times. I just did it. I just did a, a 10 day systems challenge thing. It was very successful. I had 300 people join like first time. I'm definitely going to run it again. It was great. It took me no time. It took me no time to like build it. Um, It was like, I just said, I'm just, you know what? I'm going to do it. I shouldn't do it. I'm going to be busy this week, but I'm dying to do this. I've been super into systems leverage uh, ever since we talked to Todd and like been going nuts with SOPs. And I was like, let's do this. I want to do this with a group. So I just sent out a thing to my list. A whole bunch of people joined. And 10 days later, people were like, that was amazing. It's like, it's not rocket science. <laughs> I, well, I think what happens is we we create these businesses, and especially freelancers. You know, the first few years, you're you're just so happy to be busy and to have revenue, and then you start getting on that hamster wheel, and it's it's it can feel dangerous to get off because you pay a price for not billing every hour of your time. Right? Pick something small, put it in a box, try it out. What have you got to lose? <laughs> Exactly. Right. If it doesn't work, big deal. Yeah. Try something else. I did this once with something I thought was just a great idea. I sent it out to my list. <laughs> I got one person going, maybe. <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> done. Next. <laughs> yeah. That happens to me. It happens to me about 50% of the time when I send, I'll send an idea, like I'll say to the list, well, what, what if thing? crickets like okay glad glad i didn't spend six months building it 
Exactly. Exactly. It, you can't have an ego around this stuff. It's it's having the ideas and then seeing if if you can find a tribe ultimately that is interested in it. Cool. All right. So to kind of wrap up the concept, what we're talking about here is is to think more broadly around ways that you could package up your expertise to sell it to clients at a different scale, a different level of high touch versus low touch, high touch and low touch sales, high touch and low touch delivery, play with those variables, look for wins that you've had in the past. Maybe that's a product. Maybe it's a productized service. Maybe it's a a target market that you could go after for doing speaking gigs or whatever. Maybe you should create an info product. There's so many different ways to take what's in your head and translate it to the world in a way that's not going to, if they find it on the bathroom floor, they're not going to run screaming for the fire department. (laughs) So it's like, I can't get that visual out of my mind. I know. I know. I don't, I don't want to find any slime in my house. No. It's about looking at different ways to, you know, we're talking about slicing and dicing your knowledge and your expertise, but it's also about pricing. It's about finding different ways to perhaps creatively, perhaps not creatively, price your services and your products or productized services in ways that give you more income streams and change your risk profile for your business. Mm-hmm. Yep. It could be subscription, a recurring model for a group coaching or a mastermind uh, or some sort of ongoing support around a course. It could be one-time things like books. It could be tiered pricing with things like books where at a low level, it's just the book. And the next level up, it's got a bunch of videos with it. And the next level up includes a 30-minute call. There's all these different things you can do with pricing to, I mean, pricing is the craziest thing ever. We could talk about, obviously, I talk about pricing all day, every day. So, I mean, it's it's bonkers. But play with it. That's the thing. There's no There's no hard and fast rules. You want to play with it. Try different things. And for heaven's sake, if you're doing hourly billing, I mean, that is like, it's got pros and cons, I'll admit, but it's mostly bad, in my humble opinion, in the long term. So if you, if that's all you're doing, try a few other things. Try, I mean, I don't, I want to beat a dead horse, but just try a few different things. Think more broadly about what you do, how to package it up at different price points so that people can afford it and still get value from it. Yes, they have to afford and get value. Right. And then they'll come back for more. All right, cool. We should, yeah, we should probably wrap up. Yes. That's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.